Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. If you're a writer, then you likely know the pain of writer's block. It's that horrible feeling of sitting down at your computer or sitting down with a blank sheet of paper in front of you and having nothing to say, nothing to write. Often those difficult experiences translate to writer's resistance. We internalize the belief that writing is so difficult that we resist writing altogether. It's a terrible cycle to be in. But you might be comforted to know that it's entirely human. In fact, there is a neurological component to why we resist writing. And there are numerous strategies to retrain our brains so that we don't resist writing. On today's podcast, we are delighted to have Roseanne Bain, author of Around the Writer's Block, Using Brain Science to Solve Writer's Resistance. In this episode, Roseanne helps us understand writer's resistance with a neurological framework and offers practical tips for breaking the resistance. Welcome, Roseanne, to our podcast. I'm so excited to have you. I've been talking about this book with everybody I come across. So I'm so excited to have you in the person here talking about these great ideas and your research that you've done for writer's block, around the writer's block. I love it. So you say in this this book that as writers, we're so hard on ourselves and we blame ourselves for procrastinating. We tell ourselves that we're lazy and that we lack imagination and willpower. So if we're not being lazy or unimaginative or self-indulgent, what is going on in the writer's brain when we want to write, but don't, or just get stuck and can't? That is the question that I wondered about for years. I just, it was like, I want to write. I love to write. So why do I have so many ways to not write? And actually, I was really turned on by a lot of the uh, neurology research that was coming out. I read a book by Joseph Ledoux called The Emotional Brain. And that is where I had my light bulb moment of realizing this is it. This is why it's so hard to write. And it boils down to the fact that basically we don't have a brain. We actually have a brain system. And part of our brain is very committed to writing and wants to write. And as long as that part of the brain's running the show, we're doing great. But the problem is that part of the brain is not always running the show and does a really bad job of recognizing when it's not. So there's this story that I found that is just fabulous for illustrating this. And it's the story of a woman in France in 1906. And the research I found doesn't identify her. It tells us who the doctor was, Dr. Edward Kleparid, but it doesn't tell us her name. So I just call her Amy. And what happened to Amy is she, she had an accident, got a brain injury, and she was admitted to this hospital and assigned to this Dr. Kleparidi. And 
she could not remember anything that happened after the accident. She could remember everything before the accident, but nothing afterward for more than a few minutes. I think there was a, a Drew Barrymore movie where that was going on. She could remember a day, but then when she went to sleep, she'd forget everything that happened. This was a lot more dramatic, and people who have this type of brain injury, it's much more dramatic. They can remember maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the most. They just Their brain just keeps resetting. So every time the doctor went in to meet with his patient, Amy, he would have to introduce himself as if it was the first time because for Amy, it always was the first time he was meeting her. So he would come in, he'd introduce himself, he'd shake hands with her, they'd talk. And one day he got an idea, he was going to try something new. So he put like a thumbtack, a pin between the fingers of his right hand so that when he shook hands with her, she got this sharp, surprising, but really harmless stab in her right palm. And she jerked back, he apologized and then left. And he waited a little while until, you know, her memory would reset. And he went back in and introduced himself, offered his hand to shake hands as he always did. And for the first time ever, Amy refused to shake his hands. She had no conscious memory. Her cortex could not access the memory of what had just happened to her. So why was she refusing to shake hands? The thing is that there's two different memory systems. And there's a memory system that we have conscious memory of, and then there's a memory system, particularly for painful experiences, like you mentioned, where that memory gets set in, but we don't have conscious awareness of it. The really interesting thing for me is that when he pushed her and said, why won't you shake my hand? She kind of hesitated, and then she said, well, isn't it all right that sometimes one simply chooses not to shake hands? So, so <laughs> her cortex, which is the creative part of the brain, it's our, all the executive functions of being able to plan our actions and monitor our behavior, make plans, stick to them, all of those things, that had no conscious awareness of the memory, didn't know what was going on but it made up a story to explain what was going on. So her limbic system, which is another part of the brain, that had the memory of the painful experience. And it was the part of her brain that was saying, you know, that was basically keeping her from shaking hands. She was apprehensive, she was afraid, she just didn't know why, but she just knew she didn't, like you said, she remembered it was painful, so she was pulling away. She didn't know why though. So that's kind of what that self-blame does for writers is sometimes we're apprehensive. We pull away from our writing. We don't know why. We have no conscious memory of why we might be resisting it. But there is a good reason. There is, you don't have to know what the good reason is to know that there's a good reason. If we're not conscious of the reasons, but what is forming that that kind of auto response that we create this resistance towards? Like, what are some of those things that lead us to think, oh, writing, I, you know, this is going to be hard today? 
I think to understand that you need to understand just a little bit about the brain. And I know not every writer is as much of a brain geek as I am. So I, I keep it simple. But so basically, traditionally, the brain is thought to consist of three different main areas. The first is the brain stem. And I tell people, if you have two hands, you have a working model of your brain. It, you think of your right thumb as the brain stem and your forearm is kind of the, your spinal cord. The brain stem is the most ancient part of the brain. It's, the, it's in charge of things like digestion, respiration, keeping your heart beating, basic body movements, re reproduction, all those really ancient functions for mammals, well, reptiles, snakes, all, all animals. So that's in the brain stem. And then if you put your right thumb against your palm and close your fingers over it, your fingers are what's called the limbic system, which is the emotional brain. It's the instinctive reactionary brain. It's your fight or flight response. And it also controls a lot of what comes into our senses. It processes some of the sensory information and then it sends that information to other areas in the brain. And then if you put your left hand on top of your right hand, that's basically your cortex. The cortex is evolutionarily speaking, the most recent part of the brain. And that is the part of the brain that has our executive functions, making plans, having a moral code, deciding what your actions will be, being able to follow through on that, thinking clearly and logically and rationally, that's all the cortex. So your desire to write and your commitment to write is all in the cortex. Your limbic system doesn't care. It doesn't give a tiny rodent's little buttocks about your writing. All it cares about is keeping you safe and alive. That's the limbic system's function. So what keeps us from writing, you know, the specific memories that make us apprehensive really don't matter that much. Fortunately, we do not have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars and years and years in therapy to find out it was really my fifth grade teacher who corrected my punctuation that has given me this massive writer's block. We don't need to know why. We just need to know how to respond to the resistance when it comes up. That is so interesting, Roseanne, because I think we all get hung up on the why. When we talk about imposter syndrome a lot with our writers and why they're stuck and they can't move forward, it's always because, you know, I think it's because my mom was a grammarian and she was a great writer and, or it was my English teacher that told me I was a terrible writer or I'm comparing myself, you know, and there's like a host of reasons, but you're saying it's not so important to identify the why. And it's really interesting that we don't know but because we're creative people, and I believe all human beings are creative, and our, cort our little cortex is spinning all kinds of stories to explain behavior that was prompted by the limbic system. The limbic system says, do this or don't do that. And then the cortex is playing catch up, trying to explain why we're doing what we're doing. I think most of the time we have no idea what we're doing or why we're doing it. <laughs> So, but we always have a story. We always have an explanation for it. The problem is when that story gets to that self-blame place, because yeah. the self-blame doesn't do anything to calm the limbic system down and 
give control back to the cortex. And it's a subtle thing. We don't always realize when our limbic system is subtly taken over and is directing our behavior more than our creative self. I love that language of calming the limbic system and giving control to the cortex. What are some strategies for doing that? Or do you not think in terms of strategies? Well, the, the basic thing is relaxing. If you recognize that you're resistant to your writing, and that's sometimes the tricky part, the primary response is to breathe deeply and slowly. When you physically relax your body, there's a part of the brain that shifts control from the limbic system back to the cortex. So if you're anxious and you continue to be anxious, if you're stressing out about a deadline or not being able to do this well enough, or it's, I don't know where to go or how to start or what to do, you cannot write creatively from that place. You might be able to scroll a few things based on, on habit because that's what the limbic system works on is our instincts and the really ingrained habits. But you can't come up with anything new. You can't come up with anything creative because you're stuck in that limbic system. Which is, I think, why rituals are so important. I was introduced to you when I was doing research for writing rituals, and I would imagine that that is part of the the reasoning behind rituals is that there's a relaxation that comes along with that. And you're you're trying to put yourself in a frame of mind where it feels natural and good to start writing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. A ritual is familiar. It's usually soothing. I recommend people have a ritual that, you know, that they enjoy, that's enjoyable and comfortable. And that keeps your body, that keeps your body more relaxed. And that's just like a signal. I'm going to start to write and it's okay. It's familiar. I've done this before. The other thing that rituals do is it ties, it it creates a neural pathway. So you have all these neurons in your brain. And what they do is they signal each other. So they send electrochemical signals from neuron to neuron to neuron that eventually ends up being an action or a movement or a thought. And so when you have a sensory experience, say, sucking on a lemon drop, that is is a comforting thing. And there is a neural pathway. There's a line of neurons that line up for that experience. If then you start writing when you're having a lemon drop, you're creating a new neural pathway for your writing. And because you're doing them simultaneously, the saying is neurons that fire together wire together. So because they're happening at the same time, there's a connection. So that just the taste of lemon or the smell of lemon is going to fire that neural pathway for, oh, I'm going to have a lemon drop, but it also fires the neural pathway of, oh, and I'm going to sit down to write. Before we actually started recording, you were talking about your own ritual. And I was wondering if you could tell our audience about your ritual. And it's an object, which is a little bit different than tasting something like a lemon drop, but yours is more of a visual cue. Can you talk about the difference between something that's visual versus something that's like tasting or even audible? I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can have a ritual. And I've had a lot of rituals that I've played around with. The thing that is most helpful for me right now is a little, I don't know, one and a half inch 
cube that my co-coach, Laura, gave me. And it has, has a little ducky in it, which is a signal for me. We had talked about the importance of letting go, or rather I had talked about the importance of my needing to let go of some things. And I had remembered the story of Ernie on Sesame Street, who wanted to learn to play the saxophone, but he couldn't because he was always carrying his best friend, the little rubber duck around. And so he needed to learn to let go of what was familiar, his little rubber duck, to be able to pick up and learn to play the saxophone. So that was my my little thought is I need to remember to put down the duck and pick up something new. And so I had talked about that in my coaching session and my friend Laura sent me my little cube, made a little cube that's very specific for me. And so it's, it's a reminder to let go. It's a visual symbol I always see, but it's also reminds me of the support that I have in my fellow writer. And it's just very soothing and comforting. So, so it is soothing. That's the primary role that it plays as right. a soothing mechanism for you. Yeah. Thinking about Laura is because we're both writers, because we're friends, because she's so encouraging and supportive. It reminds me of all those little pieces. And every time I look at it, I don't think, oh, that's right. Laura is my really, really great writing friend in my corner and all of that. <laughs> I think it, I, I look at it and I might think of Laura, but I might just see it. and. I'm not consciously processing all that, but I believe that my limbic system, I think the unconscious memories, I think all that plays into it on a level that I'm not consciously aware of. What I read in your book was that, so there's this this, this powerful limbic system operating and we have to really engage you know, our cortex to try to, to move forward, but you say that our brain is wired for change. Can you explain the flexibility of the brain? The brain's capacity to heal itself, to continue to grow new neurons, to continue to learn, grow, and change is called neuroplasticity. And when I was growing up, neuroplasticity was not in our lexicon. What I was taught was that your brain grows and changes through childhood, but basically you have a certain limited number of neurons. And so your brain's developing and growing until this wonderful, bright and shiny day somewhere in your early 20s when your, lot, when your brain is at its peak performance. And then it's all downhill from there because you damage your neurons, they're not coming back, that's it, you're, you're losing things. So they told me that if you, if you drink alcohol, if you do drugs, if you, you, know, if you smith, sniff too much magic marker or gasoline fumes, you're losing neurons and they're never coming back. And so I never partied. I never got a chance to party in high school and college. <laughs> I was too worried about losing neurons. I want to keep my brain. So now I'm in my 60s and I didn't have any fun in college and high school. And I still can't remember why I've come into a room at some of the time. <laughs> uh, but I'm actually I'm joking because even in our 60s and well beyond that, the brain continues to grow new neurons. We can learn new things. We can create new neural pathways. We're doing it all the time. And the more that we realize we can do that, the more we try to do that, the more we do it. 
So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think that your brain's going to just wither up and, and, you know, rattle around inside your skull once you're 50, then you'll stop doing the things that keep your brain engaged and your brain can atrophy. So can you then bridge that then to writer's resistance? And we've talked a little bit about some of the things that we can do <laughs> to create new neural pathways and reframe the way we look at writer's resistance, but can you get even more specific? Here's one of the things. If, if you want to look at neuroplasticity, Jill Bolte-Taylor wrote a fabulous book called My Stroke of Insight. And she herself was a neuroscientist, and she had a massive stroke that temporarily took out most, nearly all of her left hemisphere. And so she had massive things that she could no longer do. She couldn't speak. She couldn't understand numbers. She couldn't move parts of her body. And her recovery was a long way coming. I mean, she had several surgeries. It was more than a year before she felt that she had recovered as much of that part of her as she wanted to recover, which is a really interesting insight. But she talks about neuroplasticity this way. She says that she compares the brain to a playground where children are playing different games in different places. And Here's a quote. Each of those groups of children are doing different yet similar things, very much like the different sets of cells in the brain. If you remove the jungle gym, then those kids are not going to just go away. They're going to mingle with the other kids and start doing whatever else is available. The same is true for neurons. In the case of vision, if you put a patch over one eye, blocking visual stimulation coming into the cells of the visual cortex, then those cells will reach out to adjacent cells to see if they can contribute their efforts towards a new function. So the brain is, so your neurons don't just sit around and do nothing. They're too important to do nothing. So if they can't do what they are originally designed to do, they will go work for someone else. So your neurons are constantly growing. And one of the really important things is that stroke patients like Jill Bolte-Taylor have remarkable capacity for recovering function, but they have to know that they can recover the function. And the most important part is the patient's willingness to practice. So you have a stroke and say you lose the ability to move your left hand. And so those neurons in the brain are at the very center of the stroke. They are destroyed. They're killed. But the neurons around those cells are just damaged. And so if the person tries to move their left hand, they can't make up for the dead cells, but new neurons will grow and the cells around the area of the stroke still have some function. So mm -hmm. if you practice moving your left hand, you recover that capacity. So it's the people that are willing to be bad at it. So if you expect that your left hand is going to function the way it has always functioned immediately, it's not going to happen. Because if you're not practicing and working with those neurons, challenging them, they'll go do something else. They'll go work for your left shoulder. So <laughs> if you're willing to be awkward 
and imperfect then and you keep practicing and keep practicing while being awkward, while being imperfect, while doing it badly, those are the people who recover the most. I always tell my students, if you want to write well, you have got to be willing to write crap because good writing always comes from rewriting and you have to be willing to just puke it out on the page some days and just be willing to show up and whatever happens happens instead of waiting until you have this crystal clear moment when you know you can say it perfectly and get the words to just fly out of your fingers you have to be willing to be awkward and keep trying because writing like any other skill is one we get better at the more we practice it I want to move to this part of your book where you talk about the difference between process writing and product writing, because I think that that gives people a way to show up for their writing in different ways, which Mm -hmm. I felt was the most helpful part to me was like, oh, I don't have to show up in this one way. It's just important to show up to writing in some way. So can you talk about the difference between process and product writing and the difference between the two and how they inform each other? Sure. It's related a bit to the three writing habits that I recommend people develop. One is self-care, where you know, you're taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually, taking care of your brain. Self-care is a really important kind of thing. You, you've got to have that for brain capacity, just to keep your brain functionally well. Then there's something that I call process, which is something you show up and do just for the sake of doing it. It might be coloring in a coloring book. It might be flying a kite. It might be playing. I have a little thumb piano that is little. It's an African thumb thing that you just pluck on. Sometimes you just pluck on that. It's, It's not something that you're doing to create anything specific. It's where you're just playing around, fooling around. That is an important thing to do. Then there is product time, which is the time that you set about where you do have an intent to create something. You do want to write a book or finish your novel or finish your your poems or paint your house or whatever. You have an end goal in mind. That's your product time. And I encourage people to make a very small commitment to show up for a certain number of days, certain number of minutes to put in for product time. What you do in product time matters much less, especially in the beginning, than just showing up for it. So in your product time, you can do anything that is related to ultimate to the ultimate goal of writing your book. So that might be doing research, that might be organizing your desk so you can get to your space. If you went to work for someone and you were supposed to produce this written product, but the office space they gave you was incredibly messy, you would expect to be paid for the time it took you to prepare the space. So anything that you would clock in for if they were paying you is something that counts for product time. So that's the research, that's the drafting, that's the revising. That's even the time you spend sitting at your desk and staring at the place where the ceiling meets the wall and wondering, what the heck am I going to do with this? (laughs) All of that counts as product time. As long as you show up for your writing and you don't do anything else, you don't let yourself play computer games, you don't check your email, you don't suddenly decide you have to feed the dog or empty the dishwasher, start the laundry. If you're there, 
that counts. And most people have very little tolerance for just sitting there and doing absolutely nothing. So they'll do something and related to the writing. And you know when you're cheating. You know, oh, I'm just going to sneak in. You're only cheating yourself. So it can be free writing. It could be journaling. It can be any of that. So something like free writing and journaling could be either process or product. So if you're journaling just because you like to journal or you kept a journal for a long time and it's just kind of what you do to relax at the end of the day, then that's process. But if you're journaling specifically or you're free writing specifically about a character or something in the book or in the writing that you're trying to develop, then it's product time. I had to chuckle on your book. You talked about, I think you said something to the effect of why is it that our houses never get cleaner when we have like a deadline approaching? I think there's something to that. And I'm like, that's always my default. I'm like, I think I'm going to go clean the toilets because that sounds better than writing right now. I think my wife would appreciate it if I thought of cleaning the toilets when I'm <laughs> That's not my go-to. That's um, not your go-to. No. What is go-to. your go-to? Or have you evolved so much that you don't do the that anymore? I wouldn't say I've evolved that much. I have pretty solid habits now. But the one that I need to watch out for is the thought, I'll just check my email first. It'll only take a few minutes and then I won't have to think about that. And then I can do my writing. So that's my, when I'm feeling a little bit of resistance, that's what my limbic system is, I guess, learned to suggest to keep me from writing is, well, go look at the email. Or okay, go- let's go there because I think everybody listening to this podcast, that is the temptation. So what, what would you say, like what happens when you say, I'm just going to go check this email and then it will be off my plate and I can really start focusing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so what I recommend is that in addition to the three habits or part of the three habit around product time, I recommend that writers make very clear commitments and very small commitments. So my commitment before I became semi-retired, my standard commitment was 15 minutes a day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. And then I would indicate the time of day I thought I would be showing up based on my teaching schedule, my coaching schedule, and other things that were going on. So if I have said that on Tuesday, I'm going to show up in the morning around 10 to put in 15 minutes, and it's Tuesday, and it's 1030, and I'm still farting around doing something else, I know I've got a little resistance going on. And that's really important to be able to to recognize the resistance because it can be so subtle. I mean, it can be massive being, you know, like an outrageous place of I've done some crazy things in my life and full blown limbic system takeovers that are just insane. So, you know, when it's a big event like that, but when it's something more subtle, the only way to recognize it is to know, oh, I'm not doing what I intended to do. So there's some resistance going on. That's not to say that I, I can't pick it up at 1030. In fact, that's a signal for me. Okay, I really need to, you know, set that aside and get to my writing. So on that level, it doesn't have to be, oh my God, I'm in resistance. It's just, oh yeah, a little resistance there. Time to go. And it doesn't say that I can't do anything else if I think at 930 
oh, something's come up and I need to do something else, then I can reschedule my commitment. That's fine. Or if something major comes up, you could cancel if it's major. So I say if I'm not in the emergency room or I'm not sheltering from an oncoming tornado or other natural disaster, I do my commitments. I need to honor my commitments no matter what. And for me, that means that by midnight, I have to show up. And so, and there have been times when I've had a heavy day of coaching and teaching and get home late and just kind of crash. And then at 1130 at night realized, oh my God, I haven't put my 15 minutes in for my novel. Okay, I'll go do some research on the internet. And I looked up mules because there are mules in my novel. And I spent 15 minutes just looking around on mules and learned all kinds of really interesting things that came into the novel later. So it's this no matter what, I will honor my commitment. And what I love about that example too, Roseanne, is that you're, you're, you're doing something that's not terribly difficult. You know, you're searching Google for right. Right. research on mules. And I think that allows people to show up because you're like, oh, this is part of my product time. And this is actually going to make my writing better and easier when I actually do start putting pen to paper or start typing on the keyboard. And I had a question for you. So I've written a couple of books, Ghost written a couple of books, and there are moments where I get so stuck in my writing and I resist it so much simply because I don't have all of the content from the person whom I'm ghost writing for. And I think that there are some people that get stuck or resist the writing when they simply don't know what next to write. And so what I hear you saying is in the that's the freedom that you gain in the product phases because maybe you can step away from the writing and use that time to do some more research or interview somebody or to stare up the ceiling and try to really figure out where is it that you're stuck? I don't know if you can speak to that. The way I look at it, there are six stages in the creative process. And it's not until the fourth stage, fifth stage, that you actually have fingers on the keyboard, that sense of, oh, I'm really writing. So you have to count all the things that come in the first four stages because you can't get to stage five without doing stages one, two, three, four. And so one, two, three, four all counts. So in all of the stages of the creative process, you're gonna, there are opportunities and things that you can be doing and you do a different kind of writing. It's, it's really difficult for, for writers when we think that writing time is fingers on the keyboard or pen on the page. I'm, I'm at least drafting, if not writing perfect stuff as you go. The worst thing you can do is try to edit and draft at the same time. It's yes. the most inefficient thing to do. But in the first stage in the creative process, the big thing is to ask open-ended questions. And so it's, it's writing your questions down. It's brainstorming. It might be mind mapping or clustering or free writing. Any of those things count. And then in the second stage, you're going to find some of the answers to those questions that you had in the first stage. So it's research, it's internet, it's books, it's magazines, it's talking to people. Maybe if you're writing memoir, it's looking at family records or photos. I mean, there's so much that needs to be done. You know, the mistake that I made very early on is I, I like to write, 
but I didn't like to do research. So I thought, well, I'll just write fiction and then I can make it all up. <laughs> then I realized, oh, you can't make it all up with fiction. So then I thought, I'll write science fiction and fantasy. Then I can really make it all up. And then, no, you can't do that either. I used to resist the research part. I kind of wanted to get the, the first idea and then jump right over into yeah. writing it all down. And that doesn't work. I have since learned that research is, is great. Research is a good friend of mine. So that is an important part of the process. And there, before you go from research to actually being able to get that insight to know what to write, you have to go through an incubation stage. Yeah. And that is where you really can't see how all the pieces connect and you're frustrated and you can't quite get there. That's the time when you really are staring at the ceiling going, how does this work? And that is a time that people often mistake incubation, which is what I call that third stage, for writer's resistance or writer's block. You're not blocked. You're exactly where you need to be going through exactly the experience you want. It's just not comfortable. It's this is where you need to free write. This is where you can, quote unquote, procrastinate. You can nap. You can do something else. Moving your body is really good. Many, many years ago, I used to send out a newsletter back before we had the kind yeah. of we have now. And I used to actually send it to a printer. And I, there'd be a certain day when you could get a free color to, in addition to black and white. So I had to get it to my printer by a certain day. And I had this idea for something and I did a little bit of research and I wanted to put it in there and I couldn't quite figure it out. And Claudia came and said, uh, why don't we take the dogs for a walk? And my reaction was, are you crazy? I can't possibly go now. I've got to get this to the printer and I don't know what I'm doing and I can't figure it out. And this is horrible. And Claudia had done a couple of workshops with me. We had partnered. She taught the Myers-Briggs part of the class and I taught the creativity part of the class. And so she had heard me talk about different stages. And so she had the audacity to ask me, what stage of the creative process might you be in right now? And obviously I'm in incubation and frustration. <laughs> she said, oh, and what's good to do when you're in incubation? I said, take a walk. We'll go take a walk. Like that's going to help. Three <laughs> <laughs> of the way around the lake, it just came to me. Yeah. And it's like, oh, thank God. And it doesn't always, it doesn't always work out that nicely, but incubation is a place where writers will feel some frustration. And in fact, the research that they've done with people in MRI machines where they can look at how the brain is functioning shows that that frustration is necessary to get the new solution. It's That's what so the brain to stop processing in its usual way and try something new. And that's how you get the insight. So when you're frustrated with your writing, yeah, you're frustrated, but you're on the right track. I was talking about how my toilets never get cleaner than when a deadline is approaching, but sometimes it's during that incubation period that I go and take a break. And I, it's like the, the motion of the cleaning of the toilet or the folding of the laundry actually is just, it's a repetitive movement that actually helps me clarify what I'm thinking. So I think there's the activities where you're doing it because you don't want to go 
go to head to your product time, but then there are the activities that actually take place during the incubation period that can actually be very helpful. Same activity, different results. (laughs) Right, right. And that's why it's tricky to sometimes know, am I resisting or am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And that's why I, I encourage people to make really small commitments. So the commitment is I commit to no more than 15 minutes. Now, I've had students say, how can I ever get anything done in 15 minutes? Well, you'll get more done in 15 minutes, five times a week that you actually show up for than the massive, huge plan of I'll have 18 hours a day to write that you never show up for. And the other thing is I commit to 15 minutes and then I try to clear my calendar for as much time after that as I can. So I'm setting a target of maybe two hours or three hours. When I got the contract for my book, we really cleared out social calendar and all kinds of unnecessary things. So I was, my target was sometimes six hours or seven hours a day, but the commitment was never more than 15. So you had the incubation, then inspiration. Is that the next phase? Right, illumination. That's illumination, where you get that, yeah. that flash Illumin- of insight. It's yeah. always very brief and it's always, it's the stage everybody loves. It's like, yeah. oh my God, that's fabulous. I see yeah. how it comes together. And then you have the verification, which is the actual putting the words on the page and, and processing it and dealing with it. And that's what people call the real writing. I just want to say about that last stage, hibernation, that is the stage where sometimes you use up so much of your creative energy, you feel drained, and you really need to rest and relax. It's like, it's the winter when you need to let your garden go fallow, and you need to just allow yourself to not be producing. And sometimes this is a stage where people really feel that they are blocked. They feel like, oh my God, I'm just so, I'm just so blocked. I finished that project and I thought I was doing great. And now my publisher wants me to create another book and I can't, and I'm totally blocked. And sometimes it's just the unrecognized hibernation part of it. And that's when what you do in product time is very different. That's when you need to do what recharges your energy, what refreshes your creative spirit. This is where you need to let the writing sit. This is where you wait. This is going to museums and galleries and just filling your mind with beautiful objects. It's where you try to spend time in nature, just bringing fresh things into yourself. And if you have com- completed a major project, you will, almost, you will have at least some time in hibernation and you need to let yourself have that time. You can't push yourself forever. You can't produce endlessly. The garden needs time to be fallow. So that might be working on a different kind of creativity or a different project or talking to other people. But you really have to be gentle with yourself and recognize that that, too, is a legitimate part of the writing life and not just a writer's block or something you need to rush through. I love that incredibly gentle reminder, Roseanne. That's I, it's very it's very generous towards yourself. And I and you take a lot of the pressure off, I think, yeah. of always having to, you know, perform. Right. So I, I love that. It's, 
And the, the expectation that we can be constantly producing is a surefire way to activate your limbic system and make it impossible for you to do anything. Yeah. And then you stress about not being able to do anything, which just makes you less able to do anything. And it can be a really painful spiral. So I love how you're bringing it back to where we started. That's so, so great. So let's end on this. You've already given us some really practical tips, but if you could sum up the five to seven best practical tips for writers who are facing writer's resistance, what would those be? Well, number one would be to recognize the resistance. So having commitments so that you can see when you're deviating from your commitments is a good way of recognizing it. If you feel anxious or stressed about your writing, that's a good indicator that you're having resistance. So that's the first thing is being able to recognize when it's off. And then the second thing is having those clear commitments so that you can recognize it. The most important thing in the moment is to take deep breaths. Take another deep breath. Physically relax your body and your limbic system will ease and you'll be able to move into your writing time. So a great starting ritual can just be five minutes closing your eyes and just breathing and remembering maybe if you think about anything, think about the fact that you enjoy writing. If this is something you love or you used to love and reclaim the joy. The other things, obviously, I would, I would say you might want to buy my book. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, highly recommend it. <laughs> the other thing is I, I have a blog called Bane, B-A-N-E, of your resistance. When your last name is Bane, you get, oh, you're going to be the bane of our existence. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're embracing it. I love it. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm not, I don't want to be the bane of anybody's existence, but I'm more than willing and capable of being the bane of your resistance. So that I'm happy to do. I have not added a lot of content in a while, but I have a lot of archive material that, that'll help people at the blog. Another really important tip is, I think, separating writing from publishing. You yeah. promise yourself that you'll work on your writing on given days. That, that keeps you in your writing space. But you need to know that writing is not a commitment to share what, you're, what you do that day with the world. So just because you're working on something today doesn't mean you have to publish it, doesn't mean you have to show it to your writer's group, because sometimes people can get a little nervous or anxious about, if I write about this, my grandmother's going to be shocked, or Aunt Ruby's going to hate me forever, or whatever it is. Just because you've written it doesn't mean you have to do anything with it. Stephen King has a way of kind of representing this. He closes his office door when he's drafting. It's just him and the characters and the story. And when he is ready to start revision, then he opens his office door. That's when it's time for him to start thinking about the readers. But when the mm -hmm. office door is closed, it's just him and the, and the writing, just the characters. So that's, that's really important is... Yeah. Just because you're a writer doesn't mean you have to share everything you yeah. write. 
incredibly freeing. Absolutely. And there's so much pressure that, like, like you said, that we place on ourselves. Like, what if somebody reads this and it's bad? Or what if my writer's group shred me to pieces? And you're like, then you're focusing on that one word the entire time and you're not making any progress, right? Right. So, exactly. yeah. And I think we, um, as writers, we get hungry for feedback. And it is okay to go to your writer's group and say, I want appreciation for the fact that I showed up for my writing every day I said I was going to this this week. That's something worth celebrating. You don't have to share writing and get that kind of detailed level of feedback to get appreciation, approval, support. And I have a whole series of blogs on feedback and how to get the right kind at the right time, because mm-hmm. we need to be able to say, all I want you to do right now is, is tell me how much you love it. Because yeah. sometimes that's exactly what you need. You do not need someone to tell you that your commas are off. You yeah. say, hey, this is a great idea, or I'm really fascinated by yeah. that. I think it's that urge for interaction that pushes writers to bring things to their writers group or to a class prematurely. And that can be really devastating for a writer. It happened to me early in my writing. Uh, One workshop in my master's program was just awful. And so I've always, I've always been very careful with other writers when I give them feedback and I encourage young writers to really make sure you're you're getting feedback in the right way because that can be a a big big cause of super resistance. I know that we coach our writers to be very clear when you're giving your writing to somebody like what your expectations are like what kind of feedback do you want this Mm -hmm. person to provide and provide that to them like I just want, I don't want, you know, you to look at the grammar. I just want you to tell me if you're, if you're, you're jiving with the idea, if the idea makes sense or where you lost interest or things like that, you know, so you could be very specific and guided without fighting yourself to this is terrible writing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Feedback is, can be the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world for a writer. And being clear about what you need is absolutely essential. So I'm so glad to hear that you're doing that. Yeah. Is there any other tips you want to leave with us as a final parting piece of wisdom? Be willing to write crap. Be willing to show up. Remember why you're writing. Go for the joy. Go for what you love. And if you get to a place where you're not enjoying the writing, take a break. The other thing I would say is that it's never too late to start. And it's never too soon to restart. Give yourself permission to keep coming back. That is a profound and yet simple and wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Roseanne, for being here. And again, thank you for writing your book, for breaking down some pretty complex ideas for somebody like me who isn't necessarily science-minded. You've made it so engaging and helpful at the same time. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for inviting me. I always get so much when I teach and coach and work with other writers. And I haven't done that for a while. I've been very focused on my novel. So it was really great to talk with you today and uh, have an opportunity to share with your listeners. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, it's time for us to move to our words of the episode after that incredible interview with Roseanne. We're so excited that she came on our podcast. My word of the episode is Jebel, which simply means mountain or mount. And you know, why use Jebel in a sentence versus mountain or mount? And I think it's in those cases where you're really wordsmithing, right? Where you really want to find a word that sounds a certain way. And Jebel just sounds different than mount mountain or mount. It just does. So this is where I think having a vocabulary is a really powerful thing, especially when you move towards a more literary style of writing. So Jebel means mountain or mount. And here it is in a sentence. The deep wooded valleys of the high Jebel are as peaceful and mysterious as Delphi itself. And that's from a piece called Two for the Lions. So I think it, it, it's nice. High Jebel has, it, it sounds more majestic. There's something about it that it feels more royal or, or something than just mount. A high mount sounds more pedestrian or mundane. So I think it's just diction, right? We're always talking about word choice and the words that you use can mean something different based on how you're using it in a sentence. So I think you're making a huge point. We could probably do a whole episode on diction, which we've talked. I know we've done parts of it, but you're right. It's like the reason you have a wide vocabulary is that some words will fit a cadence or something you're trying to evoke. There's nothing worse than using a high fluting word in very pedestrian writing. That means a writer is trying to elevate and show how smart he or she is. But when, like in those, the sentence that you just said, the sentence itself is very, it's a very unique sentence. So it's so important that you have a wide vocabulary so you can use the right word in the right instance. That's just such a great, a great use of language. You said mentioned something like sometimes you're looking at cadence, right? And so you're looking for a two-syllable word rather than a one-syllable word. I mean, some people, the greats actually think about this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So consider like mount versus jebel. It has it has a rhythm to it that the word mount doesn't. And maybe you want to use mount in some situations because you need something short, succinct, more like a staccato, right? If you're thinking about rhythm. So yeah, it's important to have a big vo- vocabulary and actually pay attention to sound and really understand the words that you're using, right? So you, you so you can draw on them when you need them in the moment. All right, Dave, what's your word? So mine this time is equipoise, equipoise. And so the word, it's, it's a little bit of, it's a synonym of equilibrium. So it, it has to do with kind of a counterbalance of power. So you might say today that Congress you know, the House is Republican and the, and the Senate is majority is Democrat. So there is an equipoise of power. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So equipoise. And I think I also got this word from Catherine the Great, because talking about the different balances of power within a monarchy and, and trying to balance all that. So equipoise. I like that. I like the word poise. Because that that evokes something too that equilibrium doesn't just having the word poise in the in the in the word itself. Great word! I think we could both use both of those words in some instance, and hopefully our listeners will be able to also. All right, another great episode. I think that's a wrap, Dave. I'm Melissa Parks, and I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.